Thanks for downloading the Humanities Institute of Ireland podcast. In this episode, as part of the fifth annual UCD James Joyce Research Colloquium, a paper by Professor Robert Spoo of the College of Law, University of Tulsa. Professor Spoo's paper was entitled James Joyce v. Samuel Roth and Two Worlds Publishing Company, Authors' Names and Blue Valley Butter. And thank you so much, and uh, thank you all. Uh, this terrific. Uh, this is my first time at a colloquium, uh, UCD NLI colloquium. It's a real delight, and I want to thank both those institutions and, of course, Anne and Luca for for asking me and for putting this together. I, I'm delighted to be following uh, Luca's talk because, in many ways. Um, uh, what we're doing is we're excavating, I think, uh, in, 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 with different shovels, uh, the, uh, the aspects of Joyce uh, that really lie in the economic area, uh, the financial area, um, what impact uh, Joyce's earnings uh, had on him, and, and, and I'll be talking about the impact or, or possible impact uh, of what piracies uh, had on him. Now, um, <clears throat> When we say piracy, uh, copyright, Joyce, um, we're all put in mind of, of current current events. Uh, I won't be talking uh, in my talk about the current events. I'll be talking about something 80 to 85 years ago. Uh, I think you will see, if you haven't already gotten there with uh, what you know of Samuel Roth and uh, and the situation at the time, you will probably see some uh, some resonances uh, of. Uh, of, of events that have been unfolding, uh, part of the uh, what, what we are actually seeing, and I won't, I won't, at least in this portion of my talk, I will not get into the current events. But I think what we're seeing, I've said to some people that that right now we have a front row seat um, uh, for the coming of the public domain, and what that will uh, entail, um, what opportunities will arise, and what sort of behavior. Uh, will be shown um, by various by various folks uh, who are affected by that. Um, my study, my work, and the in the book that I'm uh, uh, finishing, uh, of which I'm giving you uh, a sort of a précis of chapter five. The book is essentially finished. I've got to wrap it up over the summer. It's going to come out with Oxford in New York, and uh, I think I've got the subtitle, but not the title. I cannot get a title for this yet. But the subtitle, I believe, is modernism in the American public domain. So, uh, and uh, when I say American public domain, I mean specifically the U.S. public domain, which uh, I hope, uh, as one feature of the book, I will be bringing into, uh, into focus what the American public domain meant at the time. Uh, my first chapter is not about Joyce or modernism at all. The first chapter is about the 19th century uh, American publishing. And um, the fact that up until 1891, there was absolutely no copyright protection for any foreign origin work, that is, a work created and published uh, outside the United States. All of those works were immediately, and as a matter of statutory law, placed in the American public domain, made available to pub uh, American publishers to do with as they wished. Of course, what this created was, uh, as you can imagine, for something as popular as Dickens or Sir Walter Scott or George Eliot or any of the big names of the period, this created a feeding frenzy for free titles, which meant that there was uh, not only the possibility but the reality of ruinous competition 
for these free titles. What do you do when you have a, an abounding free resource, but everybody wants it? And therefore, you cannot uh, obtain any real benefits because you're going to be undersold immediately. The answer, part of the answer, was something that I'm developing throughout this book, which is called courtesy of the trade or trade courtesy. It actually, some of it has its origins in um, Irish publishing practices at the time uh, when um, when uh, British works uh, uh, were were not copyrighted in the United uh, in in Ireland. Irish publishers engaged in various kinds of tacit trade practices where they, as they did in the United States, they tacitly recognized each other's courtesy title or courtesy copyrights in works. For example, a, a publisher would announce, an American publisher would announce Dombey and Son on its list, and that announcement, particularly if that publisher had published Dickens in the past, that announcement would constitute a, a declaration of courtesy title, which other participating publishers, and that meant most of the major reputable publishers, would simply recognize this right. The publisher would also pay the author something. Obviously a gratuity, but, but it was all a game in which the essentially the rules of copyright were recreated or mimicked on the void of the public domain. The reality was these things were not protected, but they were treated as they were. Of course, new entrants into the publishing world uh, or deviants uh, or simply non-participants uh, would, would go ahead and publish without regard to the courtesy. They could not, there was no legal uh, right against them. Uh, but they were denounced as, uh, the word was used always, pirates. So uh, there were levels of pirates and levels of the discourse of piracy, which we see echoed into Samuel Roth and Joyce, and we also see echoed into today's uh, world, um, where uh, uh, the, the, the British or the foreign authors were calling all American publishers pirates, even though they were legally, lawfully publishing things in the United States. And when they did get together and recognize informal or courtesy copyrights, the deviants from that within the United States were called pirates by the pirates. Uh, so you have a, 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 a very complex um, uh, institution of courtesy uh, and of uh, name calling. Um, and I talk in great deal in the first two chapters about this institution. Now, the institution goes very quiet around 1890. It had been boasted of in the past. I mean, uh, reputable publishers prided themselves on being courtesy publishers because that was, that was proper. That was honest and honorable. However, it goes quiet in 1890 or so because uh, in that year uh, there's federal uh, statutes that are enacted, the Sherman Antitrust Act, Antitrust, uh, as as you as you may know, is uh, antitrust law um, uh, protects against and 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 prohibits various kinds of illegal cartels, anti-competitive constraints and restraints on uh, on free competition. Well, what these publishers were doing by getting together was simply. Uh, uh, really at, became an illegal cartel, so it goes quiet, but it doesn't disappear. And it forms a very quiet, very, very important subtext to the production and consumption of modernism in the United States. Um, enter Samuel Roth and my, my work. Uh, the, the, one of the questions that the book raises again and again is, what do you do 
when you don't have a copyright and you are a foreign author, foreign modernist author, and you are being exploited in the United States, what do you do? Well, part of the answer to that, and it has a great deal to do with the Random House Ulysses, is courtesy of the trade, which quietly operates very much in favor of Joyce's Ulysses in the United States. But another answer is James Joyce sues Samuel Roth, as you know, the, the pirate, and the word is used over there. You'll see the, uh, one of the covers of Two Worlds Monthly, uh, his, the first uh, of the uh, Ulysses installments over there. And the caption says it was pirated. Now, that's a loaded word because Roth was essentially not doing anything illegal in the United States except maybe publishing obscenity, but, uh, but he was not actually ever... Um, uh, convicted of, at that time, of publishing obscenity with respect to the Ulysses installments. So I'm going to talk about this lawsuit that James Joyce brought, James Joyce's lawyers brought in New York, not for copyright infringement. So what was that about? Roth built his magazines of the 20s on um, two things, uncopyrighted works, not just Joyce's, many and authors' names. Both were free resources that had been gifted to the American public domain by protectionist laws and the growing marketability of modernism. Roth drew upon the nascent celebrity of avant-garde authors to boom his magazine and tout the multiple virtues of their contents, literary experiment, freedom of speech, and, of course, erotic appeal. He wasn't just making free with the names of famous authors. He was also, in his mind, working with fellow intellectuals and artists to administer needful shocks to a society bound by prudery and prohibition. Structural tensions, which I've described a little bit, within uh, the laws governing literary property and literary morality made Roth possible. The strictures of obscenity law lent his magazines a deliciously taboo quality, while the hyperformalistic rules of copyright law supplied him with the ownerless raw materials for his provocations. In the midst of this forbidden abundance, Roth reveled for a time. Copyright-free materials swelled the pages of Two Worlds uh, quarterly and Two Worlds monthly. The bankable names of authors were a critical part of that. The first issue of Two Worlds um, Quarterly appeared in September 1925, more than three years after Roth had announced plans to publish that subscription-only magazine. On its cover, in neat black type, just below Roth's larger name, were printed three, the names of three contributing editors, Arthur Simmons, Ford Maddox Hoofer, or Ford, and Ezra Pound. Pound might not have objected to the use of his name if he had thought Roth was running a reputable magazine. But once James Joyce began to complain of piracy and uh, of the, uh, the, the uh, extracts taken without his permission, Pound wanted no part of an unseemly operation. After a brief um, protest, after, uh, after uh, Pound protested and said, take my name off, uh, finally, Roth, though he protested, complied, uh, though hoping, uh, as he said to Pound, that you will come back to us. us. Pound did not come back, but even in defeat, the canny Roth found ways to extract a spurned pirate's revenge. 
The third number of two worlds, which announced the addition of Paul Morand as contributing Paris editor, also contained a note, a boxed editorial note, saying, as we go to press, Mr. Ford Maddox Ford and Mr. Ezra Pound have asked to be relieved of their responsibilities as contributing editors of two worlds. And you have to remember that there was a period here, and, and this, this book of mine is going to talk about that in some detail, where Roth approaches and just about gets legitimacy vis-a-vis uh, -vis both Pound and Ford Maddox Ford and Joyce. It is not entirely true it is not true that Roth always pirated Joyce or that Roth did not pay for everything. These are, these are, of course, you know, Beach was constantly saying, he's pirating, he's not paying anything, not true. What he was doing, and there was even a moment where he is paying in advance for extracts from work in progress, but then it all falls apart mostly because I think the character of his magazine and also a little bit his own buccaneering compulsions. But uh, not content with simply mentioning Pound's name in his, in his magazine, he wrote, uh, Roth did, he wrote Pound's father, Homer Pound, in February 1926 to inform him, I'm going to publish some of your son's poetry in my magazine. Pound himself erupted and cabled his father, issue injunction immediately preventing two worlds printing anything over my name. This focuses on the name notice. This is, what the, this is what they didn't like. Pound saw clearly that the real point of Roth's threat to print his poems was to exploit his name in print. Homer Pound obliged his son by seeking out legal advice. Homer Pound was not a lawyer. This is a, something that has been um, misunderstood by scholars and often said that, you know, that, that, and it's a misunderstanding of a letter that Pound wrote to Joyce, famous letter. Uh, Homer Pound worked in the U.S. Mint in Philadelphia. He was not a lawyer. But he sought out legal advice, but the attorney said, look, until you find that there's actually some injury done to your son, we can't do anything. Ezra Pound, Ezra himself, had to consent his, content himself with railing against, as he put it, that son of a Jew bitch Roth, and vowing, quote, to boil his damn liver in vinegar if I ever get within boot shot of him. <laughs> Pound cast about for various remedies, but nothing really, you know, informal remedies, but nothing seemed to uh, present itself. Um, he fantasized about wringing Roth's dirty neck, as he called it. But even here, Roth was a step ahead of him. Veering from servility to pugnacity, he threatened Pound in a letter with a lesson in correspondence that the poet would not soon forget. <laughs> he said he had always been able to handle half a dozen goyim at a time and would have no trouble with one masturbated pimp. <laughs> He added, and I don't think anybody's seen this letter ever, he added that he had composed an epitaph for Pound's tombstone. <laughs> and here it is. Here lies Ezra Pound, most woe-begot of men. He wet his shirt tails twice, ere once he wet his pen. <laughs> Roth's scabrous doggerel combined allusions to Leopold Bloom's Furtive masturbation in Ulysses, the opening, uh, as well as the opening section of Pound's Hugh Selwyn Moberly, which refers to Pound's 
EP's tombstone, and an anonymous jingle called The Virgin's Prayer, which simply went Ezra Pound and Augustus John, bless the bed that I lie on, among other sources. Roth was bent on retaliating for Pound's very public defection from his magazine. He still hoped to make a legitimate mark in modern letters. He was still at this time courting Joyce, but that was soon to run its course. But propriety meant nothing to Roth once his volatile pride was hurt. Now that Pound was irrevocably against him, he was dispensable. Roth turned to the American public domain for his full revenge. Although he didn't publish anything immediately by Pound, he did begin to publish Pound's poems, a number of them, early poems in particular in his magazines. He published uh, several, and these all lay in the American public domain because they had first been printed, published in, uh, in England or, or, El or uh, other foreign parts, and uh, they, were, they were available to Roth as uncopyrighted works. Pound said he didn't really care about that. It was his name that he was most upset about. T.S. Eliot was another trophy of Roth. Um, he, Roth published, again, a number of uh, without, of course, any um, permission or payment, number of Eliot's poems, including fragments that would wind up in Sweeney Agonistes. Um, and, he, and, he, and he dedicated uh, one of his Two Worlds Monthly issues to T.S. Eliot, a writer that he said has given us some excellent verses, several critical formulae, and one of the most charming literary personalities of our time. Roth's dedication combined both exploitation of the name of the author of The Wasteland and the suggestion that Eliot had given his writings and his personality to our time. An example, and I talk about this quite a bit in the book, of Roth's rhetoric of generational gifting, uh, his belief that art became, and in some ways he did believe this, the spiritual property of everyone the moment that it was released to the world. Eliot was so annoyed with the dedication that he wrote the Evening Post in New York that Mr. Roth chooses to interpret any gift to the world as a gift to himself. <laughs> Roth quickly retorted that Eliot had perverted his meaning and that he was actually saying that Eliot's poems were given to our generation, as he reminded the Post. Eliot had construed his... Uh, his uh, and construed the dedication as a pirate's credo rather than as the philosophy of a man for whom the niceties of literary property were less important than uh, the dissemination of valuable public goods. Roth believed that authors gave their writings to the world as spiritual donations and that the legal public domain was simply a socioeconomic reflection of this economy of gifting. He didn't hesitate, however, to claim his privileges under the mundane law when necessary. To Eliot's accusation that he had not paid for his poems or gotten permission, Roth rejoined that these are in the American public domain. They're not copyrighted. I can do it. That was essentially he was using, as he often did, the language of 19th century American publishers who justified their own uh, use and uh, exploitation of foreign works on the ground that the American law let him let them do it. But he was humiliated by Eliot's public repudiation, and he lashed out by, by telling the Evening Post that he had only published Eliot's poetry as a specimen of the sort of rubbish that is ladled out to us nowadays as poetry. And he mailed Eliot a check for $25 as a mere formality, as he put it. 
this gesture too harkened back to trade courtesy of the 19th century. The the payment sometimes. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, appreciated, sometimes not, of a post hoc honorarium uh, when profits had been made on, on an uncopyrighted work. Uh, so uh, Roth is more and more using both not only the uncopyrighted works of uh, modernist authors and other authors, but their names, Mencken, Pound, Eliot, D.H. Lawrence, these and other notable names he used in dedications to, uh, uh, to each of his um, uh, issues of Two Worlds Monthly. And, and you, as you can even see, if you go uh, after and look at that, that title, that cover of Two Worlds Monthly, you'll see the way in which he uses, he blazons uh, the, the name, J James Joyce is up there at the top in large letters, and then he makes sure and he lists the contents page uh, of each uh, on the cover of his, of his magazine. Um, one reader of Two Worlds Monthly wrote to praise Roth for, quote, making an economic unit out of literature, praising him now, adding, on the principle on which it has come to be known that Blue Valley butter is good butter, Every intelligent reader in the United States has come to know that James Joyce is a good writer. <laughs> Ostensibly lauding Roth for his tireless promotion of literary excellence, the reader actually pinpointed uh, Roth's trademark-like use of, the author, of authors' names to brand his magazines and stimulate consumer interest. Roth drew upon the signifying power of literary celebrity as a grocer might plaster his storefront with advertisements for high-quality dairy products. Like butter brands, modernists, authors, names carried a monetary value. In 1927, James Joyce decided to test that value by suing Roth and his publishing company for half a million dollars, half a million dollars in 1927, in damages for the commercial misappropriation of his name. Now, I'll get into this. Joyce first had to find a lawyer. You know, uh, John Quinn had died in 1924. Uh, Joyce did not have legal representation in the states after that. Now he needed it. So he first went, or Beach did rather, to Arthur Garfield Hayes, a very well-known uh, and increasingly uh, well-known at the time uh, First Amendment um, um, civil liberties lawyer. He was very much involved in the Scopes monkey trial and also in the appeal of the murder convictions of Sacco and Vanzetti. These are things he's involved in at that time. Uh, Joyce uh, Beach first approaches him, but maybe he's busy or whatever and uh, he doesn't get on this and he doesn't do anything essentially about it, so they give up on him and then they go to a lawyer named Paul Kiefer Paul Kiefer was the partner of John Quinn. Um, and he seemed the natural choice. I mean, this was a, an associate of Quinn's, uh, the, the Quinn firm, which was now, now called Kiefer and Woodward, presumably had you know, the Joyce files that existed, so this would have been a natural choice. Kiefer abruptly email, uh, emailed, abruptly, ab abruptly cabled, cabled a little more expensive than that, cabled back, regret, unable, undertake, case. Boom. Beach now turned, and Beach is, as you, know, uh, you gather from Luca's talk, Beach is sort of, at this time, still fronting all of the business and legal sort of 
sort of activities. Beach turned next to a New York law firm named Chadbourne, Stanchfield, and Levy. A talented firm of lawyers, well-equipped to handle complex litigation. About a dozen lawyers listed on the letterhead at that time. With I know more associates that were involved. Um, uh, they were uh, a, uh, a, a talented and, 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 and uh, uh, energetic firm. There was also a Paris office of uh, Chadbourne, located at 20 Place Vendôme, staffed by a small group of attorneys led by one Benjamin Howe Connor. And that name should ring some bells. Benjamin Connor becomes you know, the, the Paris attorney. But he is associated with this New York firm. Um, they, they are a team. Although Connor simply carried water for this litigation, he didn't actively get involved. I mean, carried water, I mean, he was a sort of messenger boy between Joyce and the New York uh, firm. Beach had known Connor for several years before this, and uh, Connor, as I don't think is known in scholarship, was actually instrumental in uh, securing Joyce's French copyright for Ulysses. Um, so uh, there's a uh, one of the partners in the Chadbourne firm visits Paris around uh, this time uh, in uh, late November 1926. Uh, this partner named Han Paul Han um, later on uh, uh, much involved with American Tobacco Company, rather controversially in some ways, um, and uh, they he sits down with Beach and Joyce and. Uh, they tell them the story of Roth's depredations. And Han and Connor there as well. And they concoct a lawsuit uh, in which Connor himself urges enormous damages claim of $500,000. This is nearly $6.4 million US dollars in today's buying power. Joyce paid a retainer of $150. And in late January 27, Han sails back to New York with instructions to start a lawsuit as soon as he arrives. Now, I don't have time to get into it, but there's a lot of stuff going on here, and, and it has not really been fully understood. At the same time, Jane Heap is very upset with Roth, and she begins to try to launch a lawsuit against him for copyright infringement, now with Arthur Garfield Hayes. Because she says... I don't understand what Joyce is talking about. The copyright is mine. I hold the American, exclusive American rights. And, uh, and uh, the only reason um, she says she didn't act more quickly uh, with Roth was she didn't want to get Joyce in trouble because Joyce had actually been infringing her copyright by publishing it everywhere, publishing it in Paris. And that's what she says, and uh, and uh, she didn't want to get him in trouble. So uh, and he's furious. Joyce is furious. He's furious at this. Um, part of part of what happens in this litigation is is he he's working against. It's not as though Heap is actively trying to claim this, and she kind of drops out of the picture. But he's very upset about this. He even gets from Ezra Pounds a declaration of what happened vis-a-vis -vis the little review to shore up his claim that she never got the copyright. She and Anderson never got the copyright. Uh, it was just a, a, a mere license. Um, that declaration that Pound actually wrote, I've now found them. Um, 
much of this, this research is entirely built on uh, my uh, uncovering very, very happily, very, in some ways luckily, the court archives for this in, in New York and also the law firm's archives. Um, um, a pound, uh, Pound's declaration has caused some confusion in Joyce studies, but it's simply a statement, a written statement that, you know, the, the copyright was never obtained by the Little Review or exclusive rights. Now, Hayes still feels like he's involved because he hasn't been specifically discharged by Joyce. Even though Joyce has taken on new counsel, Hayes feels some obligation to give some, the matter some closure for his client, who may be still his client. So he calls Roth in. Roth comes into the office. Roth, who could be very charming when he wanted to be, uh, gives him a good story about this is not copyrighted. It's in the American public domain. And look, you know, I'm just trying to disseminate this wonderful work to people who, who have not been able to see it in the United States. The civil liberties lawyer and First Amendment lawyer in him made Hayes, I think, uh, a little seduced by this. And uh, he, uh, Hayes, uh, says to Roth, well, look, you know, um, if you really want to make good on this, why don't you offer Joyce, as you say you wanted to do, $1,000 for, uh, for uh, what you're doing with Ulysses. And, and Roth says, okay, you know, I'll do that. And through Hayes, as escrow and broker, uh, Joyce receives an offer for $1,000 for, for the installments of Ulysses, $100 of which will be a check written by Samuel Roth, and $900 of which will be in, um, in uh, spaced out promissory notes, conditioned, conditioned expressly on Roth's turning a profit with Ulysses and with Two Worlds Monthly. Well, the offer was not calculated to appeal to Joyce. <laughs> Conditional payments out of future potential profits uh, really was not something that appealed. And really, Joyce was, at, by this time, Joyce had taken the, the leap. He was, he was launching a lawsuit, which was becoming highly publicized. He had already uh, issued the international protest, or was about to, through Beach. This lawsuit was worth its weight in publicity, worth, worth to him much more than $900 in conditional promissory notes plus $100 in cash. So he, he doesn't even answer it. He doesn't even answer it. And finally, Hayes gets so irritated with the whole thing that he says, look, you know, he says to Heap and he says to Joyce, I'm out. I haven't been paid a dime on this. I'm not going to be. Uh, and you are all more interested in fighting than you are in adjusting. Goodbye. Exit Hayes, exit Heap. Now we have the lawsuit with Chadbourne, Stanfield, and Levy. And they launched the lawsuit in March of 1927. They serve a summons and a verified complaint on Roth, both personally and as president of his Two Worlds Publishing Company. Now, the complaint is remarkably plain and simple. It consists of six brief paragraphs alleging that Roth's company published magazines for profit, that the defendants had at sundry times knowingly made use of the plaintiff's name, they don't even say jo Joyce, the, the name of the plaintiff without plaintiff's consent, and that such use was being made for advertising purposes and purposes of trade. Uh, 
The prayer for relief uh, sought an injunction against further use and $500,000 in actual damages and punitive damages, if uh, these could be proved, deemed proper. It's what the complaint did not say that is so striking. That is what it said. No reference to James Joyce or his famed authorship or his controversial authorship. No mention of his book, Ulysses. No mention of uh, uh, Roth's unauthorized printing or reprinting of Ulysses in, in the pages of his magazine. Piracy, textual mutilation, non-payment, all these things that had dominated Beach's announcements in the press and letters to the press were nowhere to be found in the complaint. It's focused entirely on Joyce's name, and the lawsuit was based on a statute in New York uh, under New York's civil rights law, which forbade commercial misappropriation of certain common indicia of personality, including names, likenesses, photographs, and such. Uh, names of, uh, names of, of individuals. By prescribing this kind of use, this commercial, unauthorized commercial use of an individual's name or portrait, this uh, statute, Section 51, I'll call it, created a statutory right of privacy. New York legislature had enacted this provision in 1903 after the courts had refused relief under the common law to a young woman whose likeness had been placed against her will without her consent, on flyers advertising Franklin Mills flour. She sued for common law uh, violation of her privacy rights, and the court said, we don't have that in New York. Uh, we don't have such a thing in our common law, and you know, until the legislature says that that exists, we're not going to grant you any relief. The legislature took the hint, and in 1903, a year later, they enacted this provision, uh, which now Joyce, 24 years later, is availing himself, or the lawyers are. Um, now, one of the things, of course, that the uh, lawyers are worried about is that uh, this is really ultimately going to be about Ulysses. You know, they're pleading it this way at the start because they're trying to avoid an early, giving Roth any opportunity to get the case dismissed early on some uh, f factual allegation that has been made or to arm him with affirmative defenses that might later defeat uh, the, the case, but they are actually, we know, very worried about Ulysses, when the moment when Ulysses has to come into the case, and they, they wanted it to, but the reason they are, of course, is that Ulysses is still now at this time regarded as indecent. It's only been six years since the little review convict, uh, 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 trial and conviction of the editors, and so at that point, they are worried that the uh, court will say, we are not going to grant certainly injunctive relief to anyone with such unclean hands, or maybe, uh, to put it in our terms, ink-stained hands as James Joyce. Um, and, uh, and, and so this is a running concern, this, this, this issue of Ulysses. They were, however, waiting for the right moment to bring, uh, bring Ulysses in. Um, the case, much of it is assigned to a very, very young lawyer at Chadbourne, whose name is Eugene Frederick Roth. This has caused some confusion uh, in cataloging and so forth, because the Roth, uh, shorn of uh, the uh, first and second 
names has been taken to be Samuel Roth, but no, it's not. This was a lawyer in the case who was suing Samuel Roth uh, for Joyce. He's 22 years old or so. He's fresh out of Columbia Law School. And he's unrelated to Samuel Roth and could scarcely have been more different. Samuel was a volatile, risk-taking Luftmensch <laughs> hovering on the, that wonderful fra- uh, uh, word used by Jay Gertzman, uh, hovering on the margins of respectability, yearning to be accepted as an author and publisher, but ready to cast aside strict probity, probity when necessary in favor of piratical methods, bold hucksterism, and borderline erotica. Roth, Samuel, frequently wrote about his Jewish experience and drew upon memories of his European shtetl which he had, to which he had emigrated, from which he had emigrated to America as a boy. In contrast, Eugene, who had also come to uh, America as a boy from Hungary, coveted the white shoe world of law firms and corporate affluence. He married the wealthy daughter of one of the owners of Phillips Van Heusen Shirt Company and later served as the company's counsel and director. According to his daughter, the feminist author Anne Royce, Eugene Roth was a handsome, driven climber who married for money, practiced law for power and status, and erased all sentimental ties to the old world. One of the things that I wonderfully encountered in this research is the very, very different personalities and backgrounds in the New York world of law uh, at this time. uh, many, many cha- ethnic uh, changes, groups, and, and, and demographics are shifting at this point. Um, a case, uh, I won't go into it in depth, there's a case named Ellis v. Hurst that existed at the time, which had uh, construed the uh, Section 51, the privacy statute that Joyce was suing under, in a way that worried Joyce's attorneys, because that book involved in that case was an uncopyrighted book and the author had sued because his name was used, his actual name as opposed to his pseudonym. So he sued for, under this statute, and he lost, in large part because the court said, hey, this is an uncopyrighted work, and anybody should be able to publish it, and you've got to be able to attach the guy's name to the book. This worried, naturally worried them, and it also encouraged... Um, Joyce, uh, uh, Roth's attorneys, because they saw Ellis v. Hearst as a very favorable precedent for them. Four days after Roth was served with his complaint, his attorney, Nathan Padgug, entered his appearance in the case. Nathan Mordechai Padgug was, a diff- was of a different cut from the Chadbourne lawyers. He was a Lower East Side attorney who mostly worked solo or with a few associates. At the age of 10, he had come to uh, the United States from Minsk and settled with his family on a chicken farm in New Jersey, escaping his strict um, father, Orthodox Jew- uh, father. He, uh, he fled to New York, um, eventually got his law degree from New York NYU, New York University, uh, graduating in the same class, uh, lawyer's class, as tr- the poet Charles Reznikoff. And uh, he took up he, he had been Roth's attorney uh, in some criminal matters before that and would after till they had a falling out. And uh, he represented Joyce uh, Roth, rather, Samuel Roth in this case. His initial strategy, Pad Guggs, was to file uh, uh, um, 
some uh, annoying uh, early motions. Um, you must make the complaint more definite and particular. Uh, you need to file a, a post a bond because you're asking, you know, and so forth. And these sort of motions were, were argued and were, were decided on by the court. Uh, but the key moment early in the case is Roth gives his testimony. Uh, we have the total, the full transcript of Roth's, Samuel Roth's testimony as a, a matter of the pretrial examination. Uh, pretrial examination without a court order is a very early procedure at this time in New York. Um, uh, and, and it's in its infancy, and uh, they don't really know what to do. There's all kinds of there's all kinds of uh, tactics and objecting and hijinks going on. Roth, initially, he, he shows up at his, his essentially a deposition. He shows up, uh, and, and Padgug is not with him. Padgug is busy that morning, and he doesn't show up with his client. Uh, only Padgug's clerk shows up with him. And uh, again, uh, this would never happen today, but uh, Joyce's attorneys begin to question uh, Roth. And Roth refuses to answer on advice of counsel. They say, okay, we're going to walk you over to a judge and see if he will make you talk. They walk him over to Supreme Court Justice Phoenix Ingram. Incidentally, you've seen uh, that the, uh, the, the famous injunction, as I, and I'll talk about that in a bit, was Supreme Court of New York. Don't be fooled. That's not the highest court in New York. I think many Joyce scholars have been tripped up on that. It's the lowest court in New York. Everything's upside down in New York. Uh, Supreme Court of New York is the trial court, the trial level court. The highest court in New York, in the state system, is the Court of Appeals, New York Court of Appeals. Uh, so actually, when we say New York Supreme Court, uh, in this case, we're talking about the trial level. They walk him over to Justice Phoenix Ingram, and Ingram says, uh, you give your testimony upon pain of contempt of court. So they go back, they resume the, the examination, and the leading attorney named Harold Callan, although Eugene Roth was there as well, sort of backing him up, starts questioning Roth about his profits. And Roth says, you know, I'm not making any profits. I can think of a lot better ways to make a profit than running a literary magazine. Uh, uh, and, uh, and I'm all in this for um, art. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and the deposition goes on. Um, there's a recess taken around lunchtime, and uh, they actually have to, they, they feel that they're a little insecure about letting him go to lunch, so they get his signature on a stipulation that he will return. Uh, and he does come back, and he comes back with Pad Guginto, his attorney. Now the tone of the deposition changes, the pace changes, because Padgug is objecting all over the place on grounds of relevance, on grounds of privilege, and so forth, and especially whenever the questions begin to be about Ulysses, because he says, hey, listen, I'm looking at the complaint that you filed, and this thing doesn't say anything about Ulysses. Ulysses is not in the issues. Only your client's name is in the issues. He acutely sensed that Joyce's attorneys were trying to work around the copyright problem by obtaining testimony that would show Roth to be in the character of uh, an unscrupulous buccaneer. Padgug insisted that only Ulysses was within the issues. He turned to Joyce's monetary damages and uh, because Roth had 
uh, incautiously boasted in the pages of the second issue of Two Worlds Monthly that he, the first issue had sold 50,000 copies. Probably an exaggeration, but 50,000 copies, and that Ulysses was one of the causes, this is his language, one of the causes for the selling out of the issue in many localities. So now they want to zero in on you. It's enormous sales, and they want to try to make sales based on Ulysses and so forth, they, part of the damages. And also they wanted to make a notion of lost profits on Ulysses, part of the issues. Um, uh, but this was fraught with peril, I think. After all, if Ulysses uh, enjoyed no or questionable copyright protection in the United States, how could raw serialization of a public domain novel have harmed Joyce in any way financially? And how could reliable distinction be made between profits earned on the uncopyrighted Ulysses and profits earned on some unlawful use of Joyce's name simply associated with the book? More fundamentally, if an unexpurgated Ulysses could not legally be published at this time in the United States, how could postulated lost profits on a banned novel be a meaningful measure of anything? These are all issues that, you know, had this really gone to trial, I think would have, would have come out. Always ready to flaunt his credentials as a martyr to modernism. Roth answered uh, about the sales. He says, uh, the circulation of Two Worlds Monthly has decreased very appreciably since I started Mr. Joyce's novel. My readers don't like it. They find it brutal, his words. Um, then Eugene Roth chimes in, this young, young lawyer wants to get his two cents in. He says, uh, don't you think that Ulysses is a valuable piece of property? And... Roth says, well, it contains very interesting elements that belong to literature. As to whether it has any value alone, time can prove. I think that uh, time is going to do a great deal more to Mr. Joyce than he thinks of. Always mixing venom with, uh, with, uh, with, his, with his uh, remarks. Uh, Roth uh, thought the novel an interesting phenomenon, he said, just as a man who stands on this windowsill would be interesting. <laughs> Eugene Ross, the 22-year-old lawyer, sees an opportunity. Interesting to the people, you think? Interesting to me, replied Samuel Roth, with studied Wildean subjectivism. That is the only standard on which I judge anything. They start, the questioning begins again about Ulysses, and, 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 and Padgug says, I've had enough. I am now serving you with a stay and an order to show cause we're going to stop this, uh, this deposition because uh, it should never be taking place in the first place. Uh, they take this to a judge. Uh, the judge says, uh, uh, eventually rules on the motion uh, to, uh, to essentially to vacate the examination and impound the testimony already taken. Um, and uh, and uh, the judge says, no, it's okay. Uh, proceed with the examination. Now, Padgug appeals, because you could appeal this uh, in the middle of a case, takes that up to the appellate court and buys several months' time in which he freezes the case and runs up Joyce's bill. Pretty good for a solo attorney, or an attorney working with a couple of three uh, loose associates. Um, so, now Joyce testifies. Joyce testifies. How do they get the testimony? Well, they said, you know, lawyer, the, Joyce's lawyer said, you judge, uh, I'm sorry, but my client is not going to be able to come to New York, either for a deposition or for the trial. 
So we need to get his testimony through another mechanism, which was, in this case, a commission. Interrogatories or questions, interrogatories upon commission. The commission is issued by the judge. It's a very, very complex and rather formal procedure. The commission is to the U.S. consul in Paris, and Joyce is then goes to the U.S. consulate to, on March uh, um, 8th, 1928, to present himself for questioning. And what happens is the commission contains the interrogatories or questions that are written by Joyce's attorneys and the cross-interrogatories or cross-examination questions that are issued by uh, Ross, P uh, Padgung, Ross' attorney. And these are all given to Joyce. Joyce responds orally. A stenographer takes it down. They type it up formally, send it back with wax seals and all kinds of stuff, and that will then be part of the case. It's a very interesting testimony. I won't uh, talk uh, in great deal detail about it, but I, I am writing about it. Uh, among other things, of course, what you might expect, he says that he never gave permission in any way. The theory, Ross, one of, one of Ross' defenses is that Ezra Pound had given me permission. I talk about that a great deal in the book. Uh, it is both true and not true, uh, what he says. And um, uh, he denies that he ever authorized Pound. And then they get into the issue of damages. And they say, you know, how do you justify this half million dollars? You know, this is a cross interrogatories by Padgo. How do you justify half million? Well, says Joyce, I calculate that the sales of the book, he, 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 he says he expects the earnings in France for Ulysses to reach $75,000 eventually from where it's at. He says, it has earned me 50000 up until then. This is 1928. I don't know how accurate this is, but maybe you could help with that. He says, I calculate that the sales of the book in the United States published at a minimum price of $10 a copy. $10 a copy. That's about $160. $10 a copy uh, in today with a royalty to me of 15 or 20% with an, with an English reading population of 120 millions as contrasted with a small English reading public in France would have brought me at least six or seven times as much, namely $500,000. But Joyce's arithmetic was optimistic. <laughs> he assumed that at least 250,000 copies of Ulysses would sell for $10 a piece in the United States, with $2 per copy entering his pocket as royalties. In fact, it later took Random House five years and 10 printings, at least according to Slocum and Cahoon, uh, 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 10 printings of Ulysses uh, priced at three fifty per copy, $3.50 per copy, before the first 50,000 copies reached the American public. And Joyce was double counting, of course, because so, so many of the copies sold by S Sylvia Beach were either two Americans or four Americans, and so he's sort of double counting the American market in that respect. Outside the consulate, Joyce is encountered by reporter a reporter, a news, newspaper reporter, who, who reports that he looks quite as nervous as uh, his, his creation, Stephen Dedalus, would have been to harm another human being. Um, Joyce says, yeah, but you know, I'm doing this uh, in order to establish a legal precedent in favor of other foreign authors placed similarly in, in my situation a position he did later often take about the thing. Now, that's the testimony of Roth, testimony of Joyce. They also, of course, wanted Ezra Pound's testimony because Pound is, is, is one of Roth's major defenses. 
Pound allowed me to do this, he says. Pound both wanted and didn't want to testify, but he agreed to. But this has been misunderstood in Joyce studies because the fact that, you know, Joyce reports, Pound says, he just tells Weaver, Pound says he will testify. This has been taken to mean that Pound testified. He did not. He never got it, it never happened. But he did say to Joyce, I have no objection to swearing in seven languages on, and on the rump of Al-Quran that Mr. Roth is the son of a son of all the galled bitches of Judea from the days of Caiaphas till the date of your birth. But the difficulty would be arranging for travel to a proper consulate and, and the costs of travel. Joyce sends pound money. And there the matter remains for several weeks. I talk about how the additional problem is that, uh, uh, that Pound did, in a way, authorize Roth way back in 1921, a very different time with a very different set of problems, to publish the unpublished remainder of Ulysses in his then projected two worlds quarterly, which did not actually come out you know, for four years. Uh, but Roth blurs the chronology, of course, in his favor and says, you know, he says, I could do this. Anyway, Pound never testifies. As late as November of uh, 1928, Joyce is saying to his attorneys, hey, what about Pound's testimony? We need to get it. A cable, not an email, arrives in Paris from the New York Chadbourne firm. Cable says, settling case, defendant in jail. Yes, when the Chadbourne cable arrived, Samuel Roth had already served several weeks in the workhouse on New York's Welfare Island. Uh, along with his uh, problems with the civil courts, uh, he was uh, being plagued by uh, arrests for obscenity. Had nothing to do with Ulysses in this case, uh, the one that got him in prison, but rather some uh, allegedly obscene prints and uh, pieces of literature that, he was, uh, that his wife was selling or he was selling for his wife at what was called the book auction in New York City that she'd set up with his wife. Uh, John S. Sumner, the famous uh, uh, vice hound, uh, set him up, um, got him arrested, and he was convicted. And this was actually after several uh, another conviction. And he was sent to three months prison time in Welfare Island. The Joyce case had trial had been postponed. There was actually the lawyers were ready to go forward with it. They had their their evidence, they had their witnesses, uh, and everything else that they were going to go forward with. But once Roth is in jail and it proves insolvent, the lawyers say you know, we, we've got to settle this case somehow. What they do is they settle it in favor of they write Joyce. They say we 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 need to settle this and we need to get. We want to get what the lawyers called a consent injunction, a consent decree injunction. That is to say a negotiated, agreed-to injunction, agreed to by the parties. Joyce says, well, you know, um, you're on the spot. I'm not there in New York, and uh, I will agree that you, you know more than I do. So please, though, can you get the equivalent of an English farthing in damages and then the injunction for me? So that I may uh, be a representative, uh, create a precedent in behalf of, you know, fellow foreign authors. 
they, they work on and off uh, the language of the injunction. They finally get it. Uh, uh, Roth, in prison, signs a stipulation uh, to the injunction. So does Pauline Roth, his wife, who is now de facto president of, uh, in fact, not de facto, the actual president of, uh, of his publishing company because he's in jail and insolvent and been convicted of crimes. The document, which you all know the language of, but I'll just isolate the important language of the injunction, enjoined Roth from uh, using Joyce's name for advertising purposes or for purposes of trade in connection with any magazine, periodical, or other publication published by defendants, any book, writing, manuscript, or other work by Joyce, including the book Ulysses in any issue of Two Worlds Monthly, Two Worlds Quarterly, or any other magazine, periodical, or other publication heretofore or hereafter published by defendants. That is a very, very broad injunction. And um, much more, I think, in some ways, a real feat for the lawyers to have extracted that uh, from a less than ironclad case. Uh, of course, Roth uh, gave up something, the right to publish uh, Ulysses Name Form. But look, you know, uh, Two Worlds Monthly had already ceased publication for uh, many months by the time this came around, so he really wasn't giving up that much. Joyce, however, was uh, giving up, maybe unwittingly, that, f that, that much desired legal precedent that he'd hoped for because a consent decree is nothing in terms of precedent. It never, you can't quote it, you can't cite it, uh, and uh, it, 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 it binds only the parties who have agreed to it. It does not bind the court as a precedent. It was never published in any of the official uh, case reporters. It has never been cited by any litigant in any reported case, nor has it ever been cited by a judge in any reported case. Well, that didn't stop Joyce, as we know, from uh, himself citing it as a great precedent, because in 1937, as you know, he addressed the PEN Congress in Paris, where he described Justice Mitchell's, it was Richard H. Mitchell, uh, again a justice of the New York Supreme Court, uh, who, and Joyce said that uh, this, 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 uh, this precedent means that um, though lacking protection under the copyright statute, and even if banned, a work belongs to the author by virtue of a natural right, and thus the courts may protect the author against the mutilation or publication of his work, just as he is protected against the misuse of his name. Well, um, what Joyce was doing was really uh, trying, uh, under the magnifying glass of, of his desire, uh, trying to, to expand this, uh, this consent decree into great precedent for authors' moral rights in the United States. And moral rights have never been fully um, uh, acknowledged or, or, or recognized in the United States. They still aren't, um, much unlike, say, France or other, other moral rights countries. But Joyce was tre treating it, uh, and, and would always treat this case as if it had established that. It, it, had, it did nothing of the kind, but, but this is what, what uh, Joyce hoped. There's an undeniable pathos in Joyce's dream of residual or incipient natural rights for foreign authors in the United States. He was helpless, according to the American copyright laws, and, uh, and uh, uh, he, uh, he, he, he had a dream of... Um, of, of having such moral rights protections. Uh, in a way, too, I think that um, uh, Roth uh, 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 
there's a certain pathos in Roth's uh, uh, position. He genuinely loved Joyce's gift and had always wanted to be the American impresario of Ulysses. The public domain was as inescapable for him as it was for Joyce. With unprotected riches lying before him and an intransigent author in Paris, Roth could not turn back. Constituted as he was, he had no choice but to disseminate. Um, what we glimpse, I think, in uh, this case, Joyce v. Roth, is a right of publicity breaking from the husk of privacy rights, a de facto claim of economic harm emerging from lawyerly, lawyerly rhetoric about injured feelings, privacy feelings. Joyce was not the only noted figure in this period to advance a claim of publicity of the under, uh, essentially a claim of pu publicity rights under this, at what we, at the time was thought of as a privacy statute. Douglas Fairbanks, famous actor, brought a similar sort of case, uh, which was really just about his famous name. Charlie Chaplin used similar uh, strategies to uh, litigate uh, his Little Tramp uh, character. But it really wasn't until later that uh, in, the, in the century that the courts fully recognized what we now think of as publicity rights. Uh, it could even be said that Joyce and his lawyers were treating his name as if it were a kind of trademark, a signifier that in addition to naming an individual who resided in Paris, had acquired a secondary meaning that designated a specific economic source, distinguishing the Irish author from all other authors in the literary marketplace, and assuring consumers that when they bought James Joyce, they bought quality. Uh, and here is, I think, where, in a way, this case winds up trying to vindicate a sort of James Joyce as they would vindicate a, a Blue Valley butter, uh, uh, an attempt to uh, to, 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 to vindicate the economic value of Joyce's name. Um, the various legal theories that were being advanced uh, are, are, I think, tending in that direction. Incidentally, I don't have time to go into it, but I think in many ways uh, you'll all remember the Dennis Rose litigation of about uh, 10 years ago when the Joyce estate sued Dennis Rose's reader's edition of Ulysses. One of the theories that the Joyce estate advanced was the theory of passing off, which is an unfair competition tort. It failed, that theory, uh, because the judge, essentially Justice Lloyd in, in, uh, in the English High Court, essentially rejected the idea of treating Joyce's work, Ulysses, as if it were a commodity. In fact, uh, he didn't say Blue, but uh, uh, Blue Valley Butter, but he said the judge did, justice did, uh, that uh, this would be tantamount to treating Ulysses as if, uh, as if the estate were selling lemon juice in a plastic lemon-shaped container which customers associate with a different manufacturer. He rejected that, that theory a theory that also the U.S. Supreme Court, a type of theory, has frowned upon as a, an attempt uh, to uh, establish a kind of mutant copyright law. Gazing into the abyss of the American public domain, Joyce's attorneys in 1927 resourcefully worked around the copyright problem by basing the cause of action not on Joyce's book, but on Joyce's signifying persona, on the secondary meaning and reputational goodwill that James Joyce had acquired in the years since he had come to the attention of the American public. Just as the Joyce estate 70 years later would uh, try to persuade Justice Lloyd that Ulysses by James Joyce was a protectable trade name, so the Chadbourne attorneys constructed a theory of relief based on a kind of mutant 
copyright law, a hybrid of trademark unfair competition and publicity rights that they used to bolster Joyce's precarious rights in his novel. Samuel Roth, of course, is the human victim in some ways in this. He, uh, it took a real toll on him. I think it was instrumental in destroying him in certain respects. It did anything, at least it did as much as anything else to wreck his ambitions as a serious publisher and to ruin his bid for tenancy in the increasingly crowded house of modernism. And I want to end on one note because I do want to get any questions you may have, and this is the issue of attorney's fees, a proper way to end uh, uh, any, any case. That is to say Joyce owed a lot of money to his attorneys, which he didn't pay. <laughs> Because Joyce, as you remember from a famous letter, I'm sure, uh, uh, now that this is over, the bill's going to come rolling across the Atlantic, he said. Well, it did. And it was for roughly $3,000, which is, in today's dollars, about $40,000. Now, Joyce paid Connor, his Paris lawyer, uh, a bit. Um, but he was displeased with the case, a number of reasons. He only got an injunction. I didn't even get his farthing of... Uh, damages, and he didn't get his, really get his, he knew his uh, famous precedent. He was kind of upset about that. But what did he do to skip town? Talking about this last night, and this has not been understood, but I think it now can be. You remember in December 1930, there's a famous contract entered into with Sylvia Beach, between Joyce and Sylvia Beach, where out of nowhere, it seems, Joyce assigns all of his copyright interest in Ulysses everywhere in the world to Sylvia Beach. Boom. Why? Well, there's been speculation. Oh, it would have helped him with obscenity prosecutions. You know, put it on beach, right? Or whatever. Uh, that's not the reason. The reason is that he didn't want to pay his lawyer's bill. And his, when his lawyers came calling, he said, you know what? I didn't, I didn't know this. I didn't know this when I engaged you. But I've never owned the rights to Ulysses. Uh, I, and in fact, I have this contract with Sylvia Beach, which simply memorializes a state of affairs that existed in 1922. I never owned the rights to Ulysses, and I'm not going to pay you for litigation that involves somebody else's rights. Beach was shocked. <laughs> by what she called this brazen falsehood, and they quarreled bitterly over it. But Joyce said, I was adamant about this, though he quickly reversed his position one year later when it was now important for him to, ha to hold the, America, the rights so that he could bargain uh, in the United States, uh, begin his bargaining in the United States for, for publisher of Ulysses. Uh, motivated by that new purpose, he and his friends badgered her into canceling the contract. I'll end with this point. Connor never gives up. Because Connor now, uh, Con Connor splits with his New York partners. He's now on his own. And the split causes him to have to pay up certain things, which included all, according to his New York partners, all of the costs for Joyce that that firm had fronted for depositions, for 
uh, printing of appellate briefs and so on, which came to a total of over $800, so that's a pretty penny at the time. Poor Connor has to pay it in splitting with his partners, and now he comes to Joyce, he says, look, I now have costs, that uh, your costs, that have outweighed anything you've ever paid me on this case. Would you please pay me? And this is in 1932. Do you not think as an honorable gentleman, he says, that you should pay up? Well, Joyce doesn't pay. Three years later, Connor asks again. Joyce gives him another rigmarole. Finally, in July 1939, Connor renewed his polite request for payment. This time he adds with a menacing note, if it is not forthcoming promptly, I shall take action to induce it. One month later, Connor had a sommation served on Joyce with a demand for the unpaid amount. Upon pain of submission to the matter uh, to the Tribunal Civil de la Seine. In other words, pay or we litigate. Nothing further came of the dispute. Of course, the Joyces moved to, shortly moved to, left Paris, and the German occupation of Paris swallowed up such puny disputes as this. Joyce never paid the New York attorneys either. They were owed over $2,000. Lawyers forgive, maybe, but they never forget. <laughs> In a 1999 law firm newsletter, which I got hold of, the current firm, Chadbourne and Park, remembered the debt owed to the penny, but added, if the check was ever received, it should have been framed and never cashed. The signifying power of Joyce's name had been worth its weight in publicity for Chad Bourne, just as it had been for Roth and others who were beginning to trade in Joyce's very bankable name. The lawsuit, like the international protest, was a vehicle for promoting Joyce's celebrity. He was genuinely disappointed that he didn't get his precedent, uh, but it helped, I think, enormously in ways I discuss in the book in preparing the ground for a legalized Ulysses in the United States. Roth, who had positioned himself to exploit Ulysses just as his author was beginning to emerge into the mainstream from coterie appeal and literary scandal, and whose unauthorized disseminations greatly assisted in that emergence, indelibly fixed Joyce's brand of martyred genius. Thank you. Thank you.